You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Welcome to the 1,964th edition of St Edwardsby News Talk for the 1st of February 2024. The editor of this edition is Paul Langridge, the producer is Harvey Johnston, and your readers are Chris Payne and Harvey Johnston. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We'll commence with the headlines. My first headline is, Campaigners demand delay in battle against archives closure. Delight over Suffolk Arts and Culture funding U-turn. We want some answers. Plan to reduce postal deliveries could be detrimental, MP says. Campaigners have demanded a delay on a decision to close the West Suffolk Archives branch in Bury St Edmunds. 60 people who attended an invitation-only meeting arranged by the Berry Society unanimously voted on calling for a working party. They want to find the best way to retain the archives facility, which Suffolk County Council wants to move to the hold in Ipswich in a bid to save £140,000. A final decision by the County Council is due on February the 15th. Berry Society submission to Suffolk County Council, backed by a petition of 59 signatures from the meeting, would see representatives of West Suffolk Council, Berry St Edmunds Town Council and interested parties, including the Berry Town Trust and Berry Society, aiming to work together to consider alternate options. They say the archives must remain in the town until the working party is established, with the submission recommending the retention and upgrading of the existing premises or finding another location in the town. John Popham, trustee of the Berry Town Trust, said at Tuesday's meeting, the reason why we drafted the submission is because we know this is difficult. It's not something we can do in a few days and we have moved as quickly as we can. What we ask is both authorities to get together and examine the alternatives and the possibility of an area of West Suffolk House to be used for storage, subject to security and environmental conditions and so on. There may not be enough room. We do not know what the costs are. Everything at this point is unknown. The only sensible way forward is for the two principal parties here plus the Berry organisations, to get together and examine this. That will need, if it's to be done properly, a deferment on the part of Suffolk County Council to deal with this and put it temporarily on hold. This is the only way forward that is going to reach a sensible solution for everyone while taking into account all the relevant factors. Berry Society Chairman Martin Taylor led the meeting which was attended by influential members from disciplines including history, archiving, archaeology and education. Suffolk County Councillor Robert Everett said, It's wonderful to hear the passion that's here. I've been supporting the archives being in Berry since Suffolk County Council started talking about it years ago. So you have an ally. 
Chris Everett said the issue regarding the moving of the archives was caused by the West Suffolk Council decision not to build the hub at Western Way. Suffolk County Council had planned to spend £3.5 million moving the archives to the new development. Speaking to West Suffolk um, Councillor leader Cliff Waterman, Councillor Everett added, Cliff, you mentioned a, mo a potential space in West Suffolk House. So, if we have a building that has the possibility of the archives going in there, then why aren't we looking at that? There sits the very thing you're all looking for. Terry O'Donoghue, Vice Chair and Secretary of the Bury Society, said, This is a very emotive subject and we all feel passionate about it. At the end of the day, we have to make a financial argument, so it would be great so it would be great if we could show them a different direction. Mr Popham added, Bury is one of the most outstanding towns in England, and when you take decisions about towns like this, you need to assess the value of their archives. You don't tell York and people living there to look at the archives in Leeds. That's the decision we're faced with, and it's completely wrong. The director of a Suffolk museum has said she's delighted at Suffolk County Council plans to continue funding the arts and culture industries after proposals to scrap funding were met with heavy criticism. Earlier this month, the council announced it will be cutting all investment in arts and culture from April next year, scrapping its £500,000 in funding. On Friday, though, the council revealed that due to the government announcement of £600 million of funding for local councils, it now intends to propose a new £500,000 project fund to which all Suffolk's arts and heritage organisations can apply. Jenny Cousins, director of the Food Museum in Stowmarket, said, We are obviously delighted that the government support have given Suffolk County Council the room to reinstate funding for arts and heritage. However, a project pot will not solve the core funding issue that organisations like ours face. The value of Suffolk County Council's funding has been that it gives us the stability to be able to pay for costs like insurance and utilities which cannot be funded from projects. I hope that when SCC develops its plans further that this very real need is taken into account, she added. Martin Taylor, chair of the Berry Society, who have recently been campaigning against Suffolk County Council plans to close the Berry Stemmons Record Office, said, This is good news for the Theatre Royal, inasmuch as they still have the chance of securing some valuable funding. We can only hope that SCC will have a change of heart for the historical archives of Berry St Edmunds and West Suffolk to remain here in Berry where they belong. Jack Abbott, Labour and Cooperative Parliamentary candidate for Ipswich, said, The devil will be in the detail, but on the surface it looks like the Conservatives at Suffolk County Council have finally seen sense and U-turned on their damaging cuts to the arts and culture. However, we still have no clarity over whether they are still planning to close children's centres or withdraw funding from housing support, or if they will push ahead with mass redundancies. There remains huge concern about the future of a number of crucial public services that so many people rely on. Many big names in the industry hit out at the plans to cut funding 
when they were first unveiled, including Dame Judi Dench and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Lord Lloyd Webber said, Any arts cuts of this kind are extremely short-sighted because it tends to mean that city centres become even emptier than they are now. It makes one almost sort of despair. The impact of the government announcement for further funding for councils will be discussed at Suffolk County Council's Cabinet meeting on January the 30th, where proposals were explored. Councillors are calling for answers nearly four weeks after a flood-hit major route in Bury St Edmunds was closed. Highways buses are reopening Compiègne Way is a top priority, but Bury District Councillors this week issued a united plea for answers and a long-term solution to the long-running problem. Councillors Rowena Lindbergh, Morton Hall Ward, Peter Armitage, Morton Hall Ward and Cliff Waterman, Eastgate Ward, jointly say the closure, which has been in place since January the 1st, cannot go on. Describing the Compiègne Way situation as a farce, they are asking why responses from highways to residents, businesses and councillors have taken so long or gone unanswered. What is the short-medium-term plan for Compiègne Way? If there are any long-term plans, from elevating the road to increasing drainage and or pumping capacity. They said resolving the situation will take time, resources and money. We all understand that. We're not sure the present national and county regime understand what the ongoing cost of this farce is to residents, including danger to pedestrians, stress, di- stress diversions, noise and air pollution, with lorries using residential roads and business through lost time and unreliability of deliveries and those requiring emergency services. This cannot go on. We need answers and soon. Hollow Road resident Colin Payne said diverted traffic past his home was constant from 5.30am with Eastgate Street the bottleneck. Meanwhile, Suffolk Highways continues to issue daily updates on efforts to reopen the route. This week, bosses said a constant flow of water was under investigation before it was discovered drainage pumps had failed. Replacements were delivered on Wednesday. Yesterday, teams planned to install one new pump and run tests to ensure a 1.5 kilometre section of pipe to the River Lark outfall was working. If so, the other pump was set to be replaced. Successful installation and confirmation of water flowing into the River Lark should enable Compiègne Way to be reopened, said a Suffolk Highway spokesperson. Road patching, white lining, verge repairs, street cleaning and litter picking also took place this week. A Suffolk MP has warned plans to reduce the number of postal deliveries would be detrimental to residents and businesses in the county as a union rep described being stunned by the news. Postal Service Royal Mail could be allowed to cut its letter deliveries from the current six to five or even three a week by industry watchdog Ofcom in an effort to modernise and make the business more sustainable amid slumping demand. But Dr Dan Poulter, MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich, said a six-day service was vitally important 
and spoke of his incredible concern at plans to reduce it. The potential change comes hot on the heels of Royal Mail's Framlingham sorting office being relocated to Saxmundham permanently, meaning Framlingham residents could have to travel to the neighbouring town to collect parcels. Dr Poulter said, I'm incredibly concerned to learn about the potential for Royal Mail to reduce deliveries from six to either five or, at worst, three days per week. A six-day service is vitally important for residents and businesses who often rely on Saturday deliveries, and any reduction in service would be detrimental for residents and business across central Suffolk and North Ipswich. I welcome the government's commitment to ensure that a six-day service remains the service standard for Royal Mail. We are already seeing a reduced service in Framlingham due to the temporary relocation. David Cole, Suffolk Branch Secretary of the Communication Workers' Union, CWU, which represents postal workers, said reduction in service would be particularly hit elderly residents in the county. He highlighted how older people relied on post workers to deliver thousands of NHS letters every day with information about appointments and operations, but a reduction in the number of deliveries could potentially cause delays that threaten their health. The people that are going to be impacted the most will obviously be the old residents and the people without email access. They are going to suffer more than other people. We have a lot of elderly residents in Suffolk and we have a large community in Suffolk that are going to be impacted, Mr Cole said. He also warned of job losses among the 900 postal workers in Suffolk. We are stunned by the news and we are waiting for more information at the moment. We are concerned for our members in Suffolk, he added. Two primary options are being mooted by Ofcom to reduce the number of days in which letters are delivered or to slow down deliveries. If the first option is pursued, which could save between £100 million and £650 million, the government would need to make a change in the law to make that happen. A family-run independent bakery in Suffolk has seen more customers and sales following praise from an internationally renowned TV chef on Instagram. Worcester's Bakery, who have shops in both Bardwell and Bury St Edmunds, gained a glowing review for their malt loaves from Nigella Lawson. The celebrity chef took to her Instagram page, which has three million followers, to praise the bakery, stating they were the best malt loaf I've ever eaten. The bakery has been around for 30 years, originally being set up by husband and wife Simon and Sue Worcester, before more recently being taken over by their sons, Will and Joe. Simon said the interest was very welcome, and there had been a rise in customers and malt loaf sales. He said, interest has peaked at the moment. Our eldest, Will, is very active on social media, and he saw it on there. There has been increased interest and sales as a result of this. We do have a core following, a great customer base normally, and the malt loaf is one of our most popular products. But we have seen more people buying them than normal. We're a small bakery. This is one of our flagship, flagship products. So it's very nice to have all this attention and publicity. 
but we're not going to go mad over it and lose our heads. Miss Lawson posted on her Instagram yesterday and the post has received over 5,000 likes and several comments agreeing with the sentiment. Mr Worcester continued, we've got a great team and that makes a massive difference. We keep doing what we are doing, serving Suffolk at our markets and shops. An event entrenched in the make, do and mend ethos has just held its fourth successful Beris Nedman session with a fifth already in the diary. A repair cafe returned to the Unitarian Meeting House in Churchgate Street and saw a team of volunteers attempt to repair more than 30 items with success more than 75%. Berry Repair Cafe held its first session last summer. The pop-up event is run by volunteers, some who offer their repair skills while others provide food, drink and contribute to the community atmosphere. The objectives include preventing people throwing away items which could be fixed, educating people on fixing things and giving them the confidence to have a go themselves. Repairs could range from a straightforward bike puncture to more complex electronics issues or a damaged cuddly toy. Volunteer Mark Wharton ran a software company before retiring. He said, In software, there's a saying, It's never the clever stuff, meaning you should look first for the most obvious reason something isn't working. The same is true of repairing. It's also true that most obvious reasons are not always obvious, as they hide in plain view, and are sometimes only obvious if you know what you're looking for. So, no disrespect to the people who brought items, as they even had us fooled. One example at the latest repair cafe was a bicycle with a left-hand pedal which could not be attached. Mark said, Those of you in the know will already go, Aha! As you know, left-hand pedals are reverse-threaded. Another example was a toaster, where its lever would not stay down, which turned out to be caused by a toast crumb stuck in the electrical contacts. A third case involved a deep-fat fry which would not turn on, repaired by pressing a reset button. If you think these items waste our time, you've misunderstood the repair cafe ethos. Firstly, Something got fixed that would otherwise have been thrown away. Secondly, they didn't take up much of our time. And thirdly, the owners are now in the know. Next time, they'll be able to fix it for themselves, said Mark. A woman wants to highlight the pitfalls of shared ownership after being left with a repair bill of hundreds of pounds for her new build property. Cathy Savory moved into her new home in Cargo Lane on Marham Park in Bury St Edmunds in May 2021, but she says there have been a number of issues with it. The self-employed cleaner who lives there with her partner and son had no heating or hot water for two weeks just before Christmas after problems were identified following a boiler service. Five engineers later, the gas pipe was replaced which resolved the issue, but all in all it costs Miss Savory more than £700, and she's now trying to recoup the money. She has shared ownership with flagship homes, whom she pays rent to, but flagship says that as she is outside the 12-month defect liability period, it's for the new build properties she is responsible for any repairs or maintenance. Miss Savory said, if you are council, 
They come in and do everything for you. But if you are shared ownership, you don't get all the customer service and everything you think you may do. And if other people are thinking of doing the same, be aware of all these things. She added, I still pay rent to them. and They don't have anything to do with it anymore. It's not right. I don't think it's fair, really. Engineers believe the problem, um, problem was from when the house was built, she said. But when she contacted the National House Building Council, they were unable to help. She is now going through citizens' advice in the hope of recouping the money. Miss Safry said, being a cleaner by trade, she has great pride in her home and added, it just puts a downer on everything and you think, what's going to go wrong next? I was thinking after Christmas, I don't want to live here anymore. Her insurance does not cover the gas pipe as it's outside the house. Tony Tan, Managing Director of Flagship Homes, said all of its new build properties were signed off by the NHBC and building control before they sold them. And after that, there was a 12-month defect liability period. As the issue was reported outside the defect liability period, we offered some alternative options to explore, he said. Mm. Businesses say they are suffering <clears throat> as a result of long-running flooding issues in Berrycinnamon's Road. Etna Road, which is the only route to the 11 business units at Enterprise Park, the Starbucks drive through and scores of homes, is regularly flooded after all but very light rain. The floods, which see water across the road and pavements, have only been an issue since a hotel and drive through restaurant were built off Etna Road in 2018. The problem is believed to stem from a substandard drainage pipe installed during construction. Sophie Scott of Guildhall Properties, which owns Enterprise Park, has been trying to resolve the issue. She said, It is causing problems for our tenants as people don't want to come on site. The issue has been known about for years, but nothing has been done. Justine Murray, Guildhall Properties Managing Director, said the firm had owned Enterprise Park for 35 years, but the floods only started after the hotel and drive through were built. There had never been an issue before. It is definitely since the development, she said. Something has gone wrong in terms of the drainage. There has to be a permanent solution, not just for the businesses, but the residents of Etna Road. It is a real problem. Carl Williamson, whose family business has a unit on Enterprise Park, said one of the biggest issues was staff not being able to get into work during due to the floods, with some who had tried suffering car damage. Another problem when it gets bad is that delivery drivers don't come, and then we are effectively cut off, he said. And Roland Smith, who has had his Enterprise unit for several years, said he cycled to work, but the floodwaters often made the road and pavement impassable. Disabled access is completely removed as a result, he added. Starbucks staff said they also had problems getting to work, while they knew of customers avoiding the restaurant and drive through Correspondence seen by the Berry Free Press suggests rectifying the problem could cost as little as five to ten thousand pounds, with efforts being made for the developer to undertake or fund the work. It added that in the meantime, the gullies would be dug out, jetted and cleared, although this was described as a very temporary solution. 
According to the correspondence, when a camera was passed down the pipes, it was discovered a drainage connection was totally substandard, with a piece of small diameter plastic drain pipe shoved into the original gully pipe. To make matters worse, it is at a sharp angle, causing debris and silt to trap against the lip of the smaller pipe. The flooding will remain a regular problem until a proper connection is made, said the correspondence. County Councillor David Nettleton said, while the problem had been caused by drains installed by the developer, Suffolk Highways needed to take action. A Suffolk Highways spokeswoman said, the owner of the Etna Road land had been contacted and we are currently considering the next steps. I've now got two bits of brief news which I will read consecutively. New checking kiosks will be in operation in the outpatients of West Suffolk Hospital from Monday, aimed at improving patient experience in the department. The kiosks in outpatient areas A, B and D mean that patients can check themselves in as soon as they arrive to avoid queuing at reception. The units are linked to a dashboard for staff to enable them to see when arrivals and if they need any additional help. And my second bit is, residents at a Bury St Edmunds care home have become cover stars, proving age is no barrier to beauty. Manson House in Northgate Street held photo shoots and turned residents into, the co- into cover stars of fictional magazine Shogu after being inspired by Marion Margoyles, who last year featured on Vogue's front cover, aged 82. Each resident was presented with a framed edition of their final front cover at a Stogo celebration event when residents and staff gathered in a catwalk-style present- presentation. The idea caught the attention of ITV News Anglia, who visited the home to cover the story and surprised staff and residents with a video message from the iconic actress herself. Describing her Vogue experience, she said it was a little thrill and shared her motto for life, live it now, don't put it off. A Bury St Edmunds builder-turned-dance teacher has now added trekking to his list of talents after completing a fundraising walk from his hometown to Dublin in aid of Charity Mind. Jamie Stringer completed his epic journey in aid of the mental health charity on Wednesday, celebrating in a Dublin pub after the approximately 400-mile walk. The 47-year-old, previously known for running Market Cross Community of Creatives on Cornhill Berry, finished his trek nearly a week ahead of schedule. He said, I got up New Year's Day morning and started the challenge. I just wanted to raise awareness of those struggling with mental health issues. January is always a hard month for people. I've also done this as a tribute and devoted to my mum, Jean, who passed away last year. Jamie's journey took him to Cambridge, Northampton, into Birmingham, before cutting across to Snowdon and was made more difficult with the recent storms. He said some days I did over 20 miles a day rather than camping with the cold weather and one night the storms were so bad and quite dangerous I stayed in a hostel at the foot of Mount Snowdon so I was thankful for that. Having reached the end and raised more than £1,300 so far, 
Jamie said the support from those he met on the journey and back home had been great. He said, There's been so much positivity from friends and family, and the highlight for me was talking to people on the way about what I was doing, and then finding out they had then donated. It's great that others have connected with this, and that mental health awareness continues to grow. It is brilliant to have done this, and I'm looking forward to doing a new challenge. But first, I want to get back home, have a rest, and then I can think of the next one. Jamie's fundraising page for Mind can be found on Just Giving by typing Dublin via Snowden. Now we'll start with some letters. So my first one is written by Keith Apps of Bury St Edmunds. And he says, technology, not always the answer. 20 years ago, my daughter was doing a university course at Guildford in Surrey. And as such, she had a reader's card for Q Records Office. While she was being shown around, she asked what was on the racks of the large discs used for storing data. And she was told, we don't know as the technology to read them was redundant and has been scrapped. P. Harper of Letters, January the 19th, has suggested that technology will be OK, but they are sadly mistaken. When my grandparents died 40 years ago, they had photographs on tin plate and on film that can still be printed from. But now, when the phones are scrapped, the pictures will be scrapped. And please don't say you can print them off, the copies fade, and you'll be lucky if you can still see them after five years. We are in serious danger of destroying our history, just to save a few pennies. And my first letter is uh, submitted by Susan Archer under the heading No One Wanted to Take Responsibility for Deer. Myself and my husband were on our way home on Thursday and spotted a deer on the road. I went to look, and it was still alive. So I was about to ring the RSPCA and managed to slow down the traffic, but a vehicle came along and ran over it, and then another. Why is it OK to leave a deer but save other animals? I'm so angry that I'm part of the human race to have witnessed such a crime to an innocent creature. The worst thing is that there is no one to help, no one to call. Our vets were very helpful and the pet crematorium too, but all that will happen is that the council will come and scrape it off the road and dispose of it. Is this really how we have become? Not being responsible for anything. My next letter is from Joe Marley and he's director of Alcohol Change UK. He says, return to the pub but stay dry. You might be surprised by someone from Alcohol Change UK advocating this, but we're more than halfway through dry January, so maybe it's time to head to the pub. Giving up alcohol shouldn't mean giving up socialising. Pubs are increasingly supportive of dry January, and for good reason. Our research shows that 44% of those going alcohol-free this month are more likely to visit a bar or pub. It serves a good selection of alcohol-free beers, wines and spirits. So, how about seeing what's behind the bar at your local? You might find a range of good options already on offer. There's been a huge increase in the quality and availability of alcohol-free products over recent years. 
and they can help us cut down the amount of alcohol we drink while making nights out more inclusive but they're still not universally easy to find you can help change that in fact many of our supporters have told us that speaking to the landlord of their local has resulted in better alcohol-free options being stocked year-round of course some of us doing dry january will feel less comfortable in a pub because it might trigger cravings alcohol-free alternative drinks are not right for everyone and that's fine but if you'd like to see improved options why not pop into your local and start a conversation with the staff I have a very short letter to bring to you, written by Dennis Shriver Woodbridge, and I think when he wrote this, his tongue was firmly in his cheek. <laughs> he writes, I read today that the post office are considering delivering mail on three days a week. That's a bonus. We normally see our postie only twice a week. <laughs> um, my last letter is also short, and it's written by Brian Davis of Culford. And he says, a local resource that will be missed. When my children were at upper school some 30 years ago, they did research for their history projects in Berry Records Office. Had the archives been stored in Ipswich, it would have been a potentially insurmountable obstacle to doing their investigations. And now we have a number of features to bring to you. And the first one is this. They called it the Friendly Invasion. In World War II, hundreds of thousands of US airmen landed in England to join the battle against Nazi Germany. Hastily constructed airfields sprang up across the farmlands of East Anglia and the raw B-17 Flying Fortress bombers heading out on perilous missions became a familiar sound. Tens of thousands of men never returned. The 26,000 American deaths adding to the huge toll suffered by RAF Bomber Command which lost 55,000 aircrew. Now a TV drama is set to salute the men of the American 8th Air Force who battled terrifying conditions at 25,000 feet more than four miles high to carry out bombing raids on industrial, military and economic targets over Germany. The TV Plus series Masters of the Air features the exploits of the 100th Bomb Group, also known as the Bloody 100th because of their heavy losses, who were stationed at Thorpe Abbotts near Dis. But their experiences were echoed across the USAAF bases of eastern England, which included Ruffham, Lavenham, Eye, Rattlesden, Sudbury, Tibbenham and Watton. The programme is predicted to shine a spotlight on all the Suffolk and Norfolk connections. Venues, including memorial museums, are gearing up for an influx of visitors inspired to find out more about the men who played a key role in defeating Hitler's forces. The Mighty Eighth flew 600,000 sorties with 26,000 men killed in action. Around 28,000 became prisoners of war and more than 10,000 aircraft were lost. The bravery of its crews won them 17 medals of honour, 220 distinguished flying crosses and more than 420,000 air medals. Unlike ground soldiers, the bomber boys slept on clean beds, drank in local pubs and danced to the music of travelling Air Force bands while introducing rural backwaters 
to the delights of Glen Miller, chewing gum, jitterbugging and Coca-Cola. But they were also an elite group of fighters who put their lives on the line in the most dangerous role of all. Flying in a B-17 was daunting. The crews had to wear oxygen to breathe, it was freezing cold, and the aircraft's thin metal fuselage offered little protection from enemy fire. They faced these punishing conditions for up to ten hours at a time. Despite being set on the Norfolk-Suffolk border, Masters of the Air was filmed in Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire and London. But the Bond Group's real-life home still keeps their memory alive. The controlled tower at Thorpe Abbotts is now the 100th Bomb Group Memorial Museum. Dr Reg Wilson, chair of the trustees, said they had known about the upcoming TV series for several years, but filming was delayed because of Covid. There were consultations with the museum about various aspects, he said. We had to keep it quiet for a long time due to a non-disclosure agreement. Reg said some of the heroes featured in the series went on to do great things after the war. Major Robert Rosie Rosenthal, a lawyer in civilian life who received 16 bravery awards, did 52 missions and survived. Later he was part of the prosecuting team at the Nuremberg Trials. Navigator Lieutenant Colonel Harry H. Crosby flew 32 combat missions and was also highly decorated for gallantry. Reg said the name Bloody Hundreds came about because there were some missions where they lost particularly heavily. I just got about, it just got about that the bomb group was unlucky and it was difficult to suppress it. The worst period was October 1943. In three missions over three days, 40% of the aircrew and aircraft had gone. On one mission, 13 aircraft took off and only one, flown by Rosie Rosenthal, came back. In all, 757 crew members from Thorpe Abbotts never came back. Suffolk has many other links to the 8th Air Force, some of which are mentioned in the original Masters of the Air book. They include Ruffham Control Tower and Aviation Museum, which is one of the best-preserved military buildings in the region. Opened in 1992, it houses a collection including photos, artefacts, uniforms, letters and photographs which tell the story of the airfield, home to the 94th Bomb Group and the personnel stationed there. Exhibits include the wedding dress, worn by British Aircraft Inspector Edith Gillam, when she married her dashing B-17 bomber hero Tom Miller on the 12th of May 1945, just after VE Day. Evidence of the lighter side of life for US servicemen can be found in the Airman's Bar at the Swan at Lavenham Hotel and Spa. Over a thousand of their signatures adorn the walls, including the names of those who took up the infamous challenge of downing a three-and-a-half pint boot of ale and how long it took them. A framed image in the bar depicts the moment of the astonishing record of 22 seconds, which was apparently set up by Mick Wilson in 1940, and the bar also displays an extensive collection of military memorabilia. The Swan was the local for men from nearby Lavenham Airfield, which is also mentioned in the Master of the Air book, and was manned by the USAAF 487th Bomb Group. The unit's first commander was Lieutenant Colonel Ben Lay Jr., a prominent Hollywood screenwriter. 
After the war, he co-wrote the screenplay for the 1949 film, Twelve O'Clock High, a Hollywood blockbuster about a B-17 unit starring Gregory Peck. Airmen could also let their hair down at Berry and Emma's Corn Exchange, now a Weatherspoon's pub, which was known for its dances to boogie-woogie and jazz. They also held parties there for local children. Berry's Green King Brewery was kept in business during the war thanks to Academy Award-winning actor Jimmy Stewart, who ordered trucks of lager every week for the thirsty air crews of the 453rd Bombardment Group, stationed at Old Buckingham in Norfolk. Meanwhile, the Athenaeum in Bury, now an events venue, was home to a canteen for troops, and by the time it closed in 1945, almost 1.5 million servicemen and women had entered its doors. Now I have a feature written by our local historian, um, author and tour guide, Martin Taylor, and this feature is about Suffolk breweries, in particular the Southgate Brewery in Bury. And he says, according to the Bristow Directory of the 19th and 20th century Suffolk breweries, Southgate Brewery in Bury St Edmunds was already well established in 1821. Henry Braddock Southgate Brewery was one of several breweries in the town and was situated in Mainwater Lane, abutting the River Linnet. Just off nearby Southgate Street, he also owned Maltings to the rear of the White Hart, that's today's Abbey Hotel. Unbelievably, these continued to provide malt into the 1930s when owned by Green King. This oast house, hence Oast Court, is still there today, but is now converted into residential use. Braddock, who followed the National Whig Party doctrine of the tolerance of Protestant dissenters as against Catholicism and the supremacy of Parliament over the monarch, was mayor of Bury in 1837. He did not have any sons, which had, ma- which had a major consequence for his brewery, as there was no one to inherit it. Brewing ceased at the Southgate Brewery in May 1868, on Henry's death, and put up for sale by his executors. The brewery and its eleven tied public houses were sold to E. Green and Son for £7,000 in July 1868. Although within a few months seven of the less profitable tied public houses were sold off, perhaps the Cock Pub, which became the Grapes Inn around 1849, following a conversion, is the most notable. Confusingly, according to White's directories, Henry Braddock had lived at different times at 107. 81 and 82 Southgate Street. The latter, however, was renamed Southridge House when purchased by Edward Green and sold by him to his loyal manager, William Peed, in 1869. It was a shrewd purchase of the Southgate Brewery by Edward Green, as he knew Frederick King, a farmer who had acquired maltings in St Mary's Square, by marrying into the Malkin family of maltsters, had his eyes on it for his own brewery. To ensure expansion plans by this possible rival were curtailed, Edward promptly demolished his purchase. The fine-looking Southgate Bridge house stood on the corner of Southgate Street and Mainwater Lane. 
Several photographs showing this are in the amazing Spanton Jarman collection of historical photographs, the custodians of which are Suffolk Archives and the Very Past and Present Society. The inevitable happened. Edward Green's Westgate Brewery and Frederick King, now with St Edmund's Brewery, amalgamated in 1887 to form Green King, still with us today as the largest independent brewery in the country. Amid the discussions as to whom would have the main shares in the newly formed company, William Pede was also not privy to these, though he did receive a generous £5,000 of ordinary shares. The primary owners, E. Green and F. King, ironing out who amongst both families got what. Pede died in 1903, having devoted all of his working life to Westgate Brewery of Leek Green King, as for Southbridge House, according to the Spanton Jarman image caption, the house remained a residence until World War II, when it was occupied by the Royal Signal Corps. Then, from 1948 to 64, it became the Area National Assistance Office. The house was sadly demolished in 1970 for the widening of Main Water Lane, the junction here with Southgate Street being a notorious bottleneck. Subsequent to where the Southgate Brewery site was, a garage known as the Linnet Service Station dispensed fuel here. After this side of the business closed, it became a car lot for Alan Reason cars, and then a vehicle hire business operated from here. Eventually, a small housing development, Regency Place, some, some of it overlooking the River, river Linnet, was built here. My second feature is contributed by Churches Together in Berries and Edmonds under the heading Weekend Thoughts. On the north wall of the nave in St Mary's Church, Troston, there is a magnificent dragon. The dragon is not on his own, for above him towers a horse, and on the horse sits a knight in full armour, who we now know as St George. It was painted onto the dry plaster by an unknown artist, and is probably of international significance. Troston is blessed with not one, but two representations. The smaller, cruder one, is probably more historically interesting, having been painted possibly within the lifetime of George becoming our country's patron saint. According to a 13th century book, The Golden Legend, written to educate the clergy on the lives of the saints, George was born in Cappadocia, in what is now northern Turkey, and became a soldier in the occupying Roman army in about 270 AD. Other details are sketchy. The more famous legend is of him walking beside a lake and seeing a young girl crying, stopping to ask if he could help her. She told him that the people tried to placate this terrifying monster who lived in the local lake by feeding it two sheep every month until they had run out of sheep and started to feed it with their own children and how it was now her turn to be eaten. Full of pity, he finds and slays the dragon and carries off the maiden, who turns out to be a princess, and they live happily ever after. As with all legends, there are many different endings and the golden legend does not have a happy ending for St George. It records how the Emperor Dacian issued an edict for all Christians to be slaughtered. George decided that killing Christians was not compatible with him being a Christian himself, 
and so gives up all of his wealth and makes a public statement of his faith in front of the emperor, whereupon he is sentenced to a gruesome death by being dragged naked through the streets and then beheaded. The following day, so the story goes, Dacian and his court are all killed by a terrible fire which came from heaven. The telling and retelling of the story into the 12th century had a profound impact on the Crusaders, who journeyed from Western Europe through Turkey on their way to Jerusalem in order to save the capital of Christendom from the invading Muslim armies. George appeared to them one night and promised to protect them if they carried his relics to Jerusalem, which they did, George apparently keeping his side of the bargain too. The returning knights brought a fresh telling of the story back to England, and George rapidly became their inspiration, and the patron saint of soldiers. His symbol of a red cross on a white background became the knight's protective emblem, and England's national flag. Much later, George became our patron saint, an honour we share with at least ten other countries around the world. Troston's George and the Dragon is probably unique in that it has a sting in the tail. The dragon has two heads, one at each end of its body. Whenever I look at it, it seems to me to be a story of how we all need to face up to our demons and to deal with our own dragons before they consume us. My feature is um, Flooded by Kindness, written by the Bishop of Dunwich. What would you grab first if your home was being flooded? Not a hypothetical question for me, as my house in Mendlesham, near Stowmarket, was flooded on the 20th of October 2023, around 11.30 in the morning. I was at home, busily working on the laptop, looked out and saw lots of puddles in the garden and some heavy rain coming down. I turned back to the screen and was absorbed for ten minutes, then looked up and saw effectively a lake of water surrounding the house. I realised then that, with the rain coming down and the water level just under the lip of the front door, it was going to come into the house. My wife, Rachel, was in too, and so, rather hopefully, we put some towels to shore up the door to prevent water entering. Minutes later, we saw water seeping in everywhere, through the doors, the walls and up through the floor. Realising the game was up, we faced the question I raised at the beginning of this piece. What, what do you go for? Well, not surprisingly, it's the personal items that carry the memories of times and people that carry the most weight at a time like that. There's no crude assessing of monetary valuations, but we grabbed the wedding photo album, Grandma's chair, the picture from my father of blessed memory. We also tend to be concerned with those things that we've laboured for, too, don't we? For instance, I was inordinately preoccupied with the 10 kilograms of blackberries that I'd personally picked that summer, which were in the now unpowered freezer, and worried about them being defrosted and needlessly wasted. I needn't have worried. We bagged them up and got them, re got them to a neighbour who kindly offered her freezer. And then my eye was caught by some movement outside the window. I looked again to see the oak tree at the front of the house slowly coming down and taking the power line and telegraph wire with it. This was beginning to feel like something out of a film. 
we moved what we could upstairs as the waters rose and our immediate neighbours in their kindness spotted our struggles and came to help nevertheless it became progressively more difficult to move anything as we were wading through one point five feet of water and were getting tired out it also began to dawn on us that our home was now uninhabitable and we needed somewhere else to go i made a call and some good friends in ipswich would put us up for as long as we wanted friends indeed however by this time the village was itself cut off and accessible only by tractor or four-wheeled drives what to do well more kindness next door neighbours living on high ground offered to put us up again for as long as we wanted why the flooding well people are pointing to climate change building developments water running off fields the ne neglected and blocked blocked drains culverts and streams extraordinary levels of rainfall and high water tables the list goes on the causes of flooding needed to be understood and addressed suffolk has had more than its fair share through the autumn and winter of twenty three to twenty four but more immediately significant to us than knowing who or what to blame for the flooding was the neighbourly kindness we experienced both from people who knew us well and those who did not as a bishop i preach and teach on loving our neighbours as ourselves on kindness as a fruit of the holy spirit and of the need to embody our faith in service to of one another and i see that embodied in my work with churches across suffolk i see churches reaching out to support their communities making a difference with everything from food banks to group activities supporting those feeling isolated right across the county but being the recipient of such unself-interested kindness underlined to me just what encouragement and heart such gestures can give to those in situations of adversity so whatever you're in danger of being overwhelmed by may you be more overwhelmed by the kindness of others in that situation and may you be a channel of that kindness to those in need too and with that encouraging item we are coming to the end of this edition of st edmundsbury news talk if you have any comments about the memory stick or find any difficulty in playing it please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given Alternatively, you can just put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Well, News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Chris, Harvey and Paul, it's... Goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk.
The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.